this morning. And I'll, I'm going to read uh, beginning at verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, and comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion to give them beautiful headdresses instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that, that he may be glorified. They shall be built up the ancient ruins. They shall receive, uh, raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand by and tend their flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. You shall be called priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, uh, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice, and I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the people. All who see them shall acknowledge them, and they are an offspring of the uh, and they are an offspring of the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in God, for He has clothed me with garments of salvation. Uh, he has covered me uh, with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself out like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and the garden grows, uh, causes what is sown uh, in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. This is another of what we call a messianic prophecy, right? We talked about Isaiah written 700 years before uh, before Jesus comes to earth. Um, but this is 700 years before a prophecy of a coming uh, Messiah. We use that word uh, Messiah. I think it's a, a common enough word in English that we all kind of get the idea that Messiah is the one who comes to, to save. But, but that tracking back tracks back to, to this idea amongst even at the time of, of uh, the um, writing of Isaiah, there was this expectation that there was going to one day come one who would set free and rescue and, um, and, and bring all kinds of reward and blessing to, to Israel and to the, to the nation of Israel. And so Isaiah uh, is full of the, these prophecies. We saw it in Isaiah 53 uh, very specifically, and we see it again here. It's this prophecy of the, of the coming Messiah, the prophecy of the one who is going to set things, set things right. And so... Uh, this is is another uh, of of those, and one of the um, I think one one sad thing that, that happens is, is that there are still people out there who um, waiting for for a Messiah, or there's people out there denying that that a Messiah ha- has come. And here, uh, 
Jesus will, will say unequivocally, I don't want to ruin the end of the message for you, but uh, I think we're pretty clear on this each week. We believe unequivocally and wholeheartedly that Jesus is that Messiah, that Jesus is the fulfillment of, of all of Scripture, and we believe that the Messiah has has come, and we'll we'll get into in, in a little while why uh, some of those things specifically. But it, it is sad to consider that there are people out there who still await or still look for for a Messiah. But this passage is, is talking about about a Messiah, and so it's going to tell us who is this Messiah. Well, it begins with the Messiah talking, right? The Messiah is talking, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Uh, here's here's the idea. Remember uh, historically and and all the time that that the the children of Israel are regularly uh, um, being oppressed. They're regularly being persecuted. They're regularly being taken over by other nations, pushed around by other nations, attacked by uh, other nations. And so when the Messiah shows on the scene, or when they hear in uh, in verse one that the Spirit of the Lord is upon uh, the Messiah to to get, bring good news to the poor, they are going to associate themselves with the poor, right? Which is a good good association. I do find a lot of times when we read when we read scripture, all of us I think, when we read scripture and there there's a perceived good guy or a perceived bad guy in any passage, we have a tendency to associate ourselves with with the good guy, which is uh almost always the wrong way to read a passage, right? We are uh, seldom, if ever, the good guy in any any passage. In this, though, the the hearers, the original hearers, are going going to associate themselves with with the poor. There's coming a Messiah who's going to bring us good news. Uh, he's going to bind up the brokenhearted, right? He's going to he's going to fix their brokenheartedness. He's going to proclaim liberty to the captives. He's going to set them free. So that the idea is that um, that there's coming one day a Messiah who is so full of uh, of good news that even those who who are who are poor are going to perceive it a, a, as good news. He's going to make their hearts full again. He's going to take away the broken hearts. And he's going to set them free from all the chains and all the things that that bound them. He's going to open the prison. Right. He's going to let them out of uh, of wherever they they've been imprisoned. He's going to proclaim to them the year of the day uh, of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of of our God. Um. <coughs> A lot of times when we encounter in the middle of a, of a joyous passage a statement of God's vengeance, we don't know how to respond to it. We're like, okay, I get that. I don't get that. What's that about? But for them, they understood that they were being oppressed. And they understood that in, in their oppression, one of the things they longed for was that their oppressors, that the wrongdoers would, would finally be held accountable. That the wrongdoers would finally, finally uh, get... Um, in, in colloquial English, what they deserved for for the persecution, for for the oppression, and so the day of the Lord's vengeance was looked very much forward to by um, by those who were looking forward to the Messiah coming. We don't always get that, but it's a really consistent idea all throughout Scripture. You go to the the Gospel of Mark, uh, God's judgment against 
against wrongdoers over and against those who have been oppressed is a major theme. You go to Revelation. You say, how long, O oh Lord, will you put up with this? When are you going to send someone to deal with these? So this idea that, that God is a, is a holy savior is always mixed joyfully with the idea that he's also a righteous judge. Right? Because there was an expectation that he, as a righteous judge, was going to bring justice and, and they were hearing this as an oppressed as an oppressed people. To comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress uh, instead, of, instead of ashes. Remember we talked about last week they, um, when, uh, when the, they're being called out for being hypocrites that they were, uh, they were putting on sackcloth and putting ashes on their head and always in mourning. He said, no, I'm going to give you the kind of hat that you might wear to, to a celebration. Right? I'm going to give that to you. Uh, the oil of gladness instead of mourning Right, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness. Um, oaks of righteousness. This idea is that one day they're going to look at you, and instead of viewing you like a, uh, again going back to last week, remember the broken reeds. Right, uh, God is near to those. Instead of being something weak that is that is blown blown around, that that is damaged, they're going to be called oaks of righteousness. Their strength is going to going to grow. They're going to be fortified. They're going to be made. They're going to be made strong. Um, that you may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. So here's here's the the idea: the Messiah is going to come, and when He does, He's going to switch. Everything that, that is going on in their current world around. And they, viewing themselves as the poor, would go, oh, this is good news. He's bringing good news to me. And so they would view themselves as the poor, the impoverished. Uh, they're going to view themselves as the brokenhearted. They're, they're, they're captives. They are going to, I want to, to point out this, that for them, though there's a, there's a specific literal, uh, I mean, uh, a specific Spiritual application to this. There's also to them a literal application. They were literally, in a lot of senses, poor. Many of them were literally, and at various times, captives, right? And so they're, they're mixing a physical and a spiritual reality together. And all of it saying this is there's coming a time when the Messiah is going to come and he's going to make things right. And he's going to make things, things good. So... Uh, in verse 4, they shall build up the ancient ruins. So, if the Messiah comes, when the Messiah comes, it changes things. And it changes the thing about the people that the Messiah comes to. So, the Messiah has come, and when the Messiah comes and he, and he binds up their, their hearts, when the Messiah uh, uh, comes and, and he preaches good news to the poor, when he sets the, the, the captives free, when he opens the prison doors, when he declares that his favor ha, ha, has come, uh, does all of those things, then they shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall rise up, uh, raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the, the ruined cities, the devastations of many cities. Uh, so he's saying, it's going to change things when I come and do what I'm about to do for you. There's going to be a change and something's going to happen. Part of that is, then you're going to start to rebuild. I'm going to, I'm going to be in you uh, and among you in such a way and then the power of what I've done for you, it's going to change things. So you are going to start to rebuild, right? Uh, they shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastation so that they shall raise uh, the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. A stranger shall, fly, uh, shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and, and vine dressers. In other words, you're not going to, you're going to be my nation, my people, and you're not going to be oppressed anymore, but rather all the oppressors are going to work for you. It's, it's that idea that, that the Messiah, when the Messiah comes, it changes everything in, in just such a, 
uh, a huge way. But you shall be called priests of, of the Lord. They shall speak of you as ministers of our God, and you shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you, you shall boast. Right? So... Uh, their idea, their conception of, of themselves is as oppressed nation. Their hope, uh, their hope was that, that one day, uh, when, when the Messiah came, he was gonna switch everything around, and he's speaking to them that hope. And we see where this, this hope comes from, and in fact, uh, we'll talk about it in a minute, but we know when the New Testament comes, and, and Jesus comes, and Jesus is the Messiah, the way in which he comes is not the way in which they expect that to happen, and it causes, um, uh, to, to say mildly, some major problems between them and, and Jesus. But their expectation is that when he comes, when he comes, he's going to, going to be the kind of king, the kind of Messiah that's going to switch everything around and, and his, his rule is going to change everything. And their, their thought process, probably when, when they hear this, we know from how they react in, in the, uh, in the New Testament era is when they, he says that the nations are going to going to serve them. Their thought process was that this Messiah would come. They're probably expecting a militaristic um, uh, a militaristic uh, warrior king who's going to defeat all the nations, going to drive them back, and is going to make uh, make Israel the central political, geopolitical nation in, in the middle of, of the planet. And all these things are going to going to serve them in, in the way. And so they're probably going to hear that geopolitically, but we'll come back to that in, in a minute because... We have a point to make from that. But you shall be called the priests of, of the Lord. They shall speak of you as ministers of God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory shall you boast. Another, they probably are going to hear that geopolitically, right? They're going to hear that our place in the world is going to be center. We're going to be, um, we're going to be, to use kind of one of our terms, a world power. We're going to be like the number one nation, and no one's going to dare mess with us, right? The other nations are going to be our servant for one. And then, he says this, instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in the land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy, right? And so, uh, the, we'll just let that stand. We'll go on to, to verse 8. For I, the Lord, love justice, and I hate robbery and wrong. I will, I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Um, I, I think this is a statement of the character of God. He loves justice. He hates robbery and wrong. He says it in the context of community. It probably, again, I said, we have a tendency to view that as talking to the other guys. He's probably actually even talking to the nation itself. As a Messiah, he hates robbery and wrong. So he's going to come to them, and when he comes to them, he is going to bring to them, uh, bring to them uh, a new way of behaving, a new way of being. He is going to be their Messiah. And if uh, he's their Messiah and he's their God, he's going to wipe out robbery and wrong. Not just done to them, but done, done amongst them. So one of the things the Messiah does is that he comes and, and, he, and he rescues. But he's going to, he, because of his love of justice, he's going to ri- wipe out robbery and wrong uh, in, in their community because he's going to give them an everlasting covenant. So the idea becomes then that the Messiah is going to come and he's going to deal with their, their sin. And one of the things he's going to do, but because of his righteousness and because of who he is, he's going to write, wipe out robbery and wrong, but not just unto them, but amongst them. He's going to change the very people and make with them a covenant that's just not temporary but everlasting. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and the descendants in the midst of the people. All who see them shall acknowledge them and they are an offspring of the, the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul, my soul shall exalt in God. So at verse 9, he, he ends uh, talking about about this idea of what the, 
the Messiah would, should do, and it, it flips to a song of praise because of what the Messiah is going to do. So I will exalt, uh, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As the bridegroom decks himself out like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adores herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its, its sprouts, and as the garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all nations, right? So here here to to encapsulate kind of a long a long chapter that we just kind of walked through quickly. Here's the idea that there's coming a Messiah. When the Messiah comes it's going to change things. It's written to an oppressed people who are literally and physically oppressed throughout all of their history. If you read about it that that's just what happens again and again. There's all kinds of oppression, all kinds of things. They're driven, there's fighting. So there's a Messiah coming, and when the Messiah comes, he is going to preach to them the good news, and it's going to be good news to them in, 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 their, in their poverty, and they're going to hear, the, hear this good news. He's going to, though, set them free and set the captives free. He's going to take them out of the place where they ensla- they're enslaved and, and give them liberty. Uh, not only is he is he going to do that, he's going. To, there's a whole list of other things he's going to do. He's going to take their mourning, and they're not going to mourn anymore. He's going to take their their the ashes of their mourning and give them uh, their mourning, their 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 sorrow, and give them them uh, a beautiful uh, headdress of of joy. He's going to do all of these things, and the and then. And then the idea then, it becomes this, is that one day the Messiah is coming, and when the Messiah comes, it's going to change everything, right? And the way that they're going to hear that, I almost, um, or, or the way it was in, understood in the long term, is going to be largely geopolitical, right? They're going to hear that there's coming a Messiah, and when the Messiah comes, he's going to come on an actual horse of war, and when he comes on the horse of war, he's going to wipe out and destroy all of our nations, all of the nations who've ever come against us. And once he's destroyed all of those nations who've ever come against us, he's going to set up our nation and make it the best nation that ever was. And every other nation is going to come to us, and they're going to come to our borders. And so their understanding, because they hear good news to the poor, all of those things, uh, it is also probably that, that the, the economic foundations, all of those things in the nation, the, it's going to flow. It's going to be, um, to use the biblical term, a land of milk and honey, right? It is going to be the place to be and the place, uh, the place to live. And, and the, the enemies who would come against them are going to get what they deserve, finally. And God is going to carry out His vengeance against them. And they're going to live in, in a land where finally their name and their nation shall be shall be established as as great. That's, that is, um, it, it does seem to be how they understood, and in a lot of senses how uh, it's still kind of understood in in, um, uh, uh, in in modern Judaism in a lot of places where they still have any sort of messianic fervor. That's what the Messiah is going to going to do. He's a geopolitical Messiah. He's going to set them up as a nation. So that's how, how they're going to hear it. That leads then to their messianic expectation, right? So I said this is 700 years before Jesus, right? Here's what the Messiah is going to be. Their expectation is when he comes, he is going to be the greatest, I wouldn't say politician, but the greatest king whoever led a nation, and finally we're going to take our places amongst the nations. So there's a great deal of nationalism, a great deal of pride mixed into that. Uh, there is a um, there is a uh, an economic expectation. All of those things expected. That's what the Messiah is going to bring, and so that's who they're they're looking for. 
Which brings us then, we told you again and again that, that Isaiah is written uh, 700 years before Jesus, but many, <laughs> I would say all of the mess, all of the messianic prophecies and the prophecies lead directly to Jesus, right? When we say that to you all the time, when we're like, that's about Jesus, we're not saying that willy-nilly or just because we're guessing. We're saying that because that's kind of the testimony of Scripture. In fact, uh, when Jesus shows up on the scene after his temptation to begin his ministry, he preaches a sermon in the synagogue, and that sermon comes from Isaiah 61, which is where we want to kind of go now. So we're going to go over to Luke chapter 4, and I want to show you for a minute what, what Jesus does with this prophecy about about that same uh, about that that Messiah. And when we get to, to Luke, we're going to be in, in verse 16. So here, here's what you need to know. Jesus is, is born. We'll get into that. I don't, again, I don't want to ruin the Advent season for us, right? But we know that Jesus is born. We're going to spend, uh, uh, spend, uh, after this four weeks really delving into that idea of, of Jesus coming. But Jesus comes to earth. He, he comes a, as a child. He grows. He learns. He does all of those things. Uh, we sort of encounter, um, him uh, in, in the Gospels, at least in the Gospel of Luke, we encounter him in, in the public sense first with the temptation. He goes out into the desert, is tempted by, by the devil, uh, comes back from the temptation and sort of inaugurates his ministry. And we get then in Luke, uh, his first recorded, recorded sermon that happens in verse uh, 16. Um, he's been doing... Uh, other ministry, but this is where, where Luke sort of decides to introduce us to the ministry of, of Jesus. And so in verse 16 it says, And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. Jesus had been raised in, in Nazareth, so he's kind of back in his hometown. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. It is the spirit of the the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has appointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Right. So what Jesus does then is he stands up in the synagogue. They bring him a, a scroll. He reads from from the scroll, and um, I think that that. We should, it's best to understand reading in terms of uh, Jesus takes the scroll and from the scroll gives a sermon which Luke records in part in, in these words to help us, help us understand. So Jesus uh, is going to give a sermon from, uh, from the book of Luke, I mean from the book of Isaiah, right? That messianic prophecy we just talked about. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are, pro, who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That is, that is Isaiah 61 and Jesus speaking through Isaiah 61. And then Jesus does this. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. Right, and so this is how we know that that probably more transpires in, in this. But Luke requ- records part of it. Right, is that Jesus preaches the sermon from Isaiah sixty-one. He reads the scroll. He, he speaks uh, the sermon, of which these are the key ideas straight from Isaiah sixty-one. He rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant. He sits down, and the eyes of everybody in the synagogue are on him. They're they're pretty amazed at what he's just said. So they're they're looking. 
And every eye is fixed on them. They're like, wow, who is this guy? We, we see again and again and elsewhere in, in, uh, in Scripture and in the Gospels, when Jesus goes around and when Jesus starts to speak, they're routinely just amazed at what he has to say. And that's the case here too. So all the eyes are fixed on him. And then Jesus, it says, and he began to say to them, today this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Okay? So here's what Jesus did. He walked in to the synagogue. He walks into a place where where um where the way they, they do it and the way they worship is is established, right? He walks into a place where they, they apparently have a tradition of reading from Scripture and expounding upon upon the Scripture. They bring him Isaiah chapter sixty one, which we assume that he is he has asked for or perhaps it's just the, the reading that, that they have. We don't really know. But they bring him Isaiah sixty one. He takes Isaiah 61, he gives them a sermon on it, and they're looking at him, and as he notices that everybody is looking at him, he goes, that's been fulfilled in your hearing today. You need to understand just how completely radical what just happened was, right? So, now, to put that in context, let's read again what he said. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he, because he has anointed me, to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He sits down after that message. They look at him he goes, oh, by the way, today in your hearing, that is fulfilled. Right? So, I want you to get them what has happened. What Jesus has just said was he's taken something that's established, something that they know has existed for 700 years before he was. And he says, remember when that was written 700 years ago? It culminates here. Right? 700 years, you know that history, you know that that uh, these are good Jewish people who have read Scripture. I mean, you remember when you read that in your home? You remember when your mother and your father taught that to you? You remember how we learned the stories of our people? You remember how we learned uh, the expectations of our people? You know how our people long for the coming of a Messiah to make all things right? You know how 700 years of history and even the Messianic history before that, though he doesn't say that, it's implied. You know how all of that... Yeah, that's all fulfilled in me, right here, right now. It is a radical, radical thing he has just done. And one of my concerns for us, living in the year 2015, is that who Jesus is and what Jesus has done is rather de-radicalized for us, right? Um, I, having grown up in the church, have heard since I was, since I was born the, the, about what Jesus has done. Right? I've never really grown up in, in a sense where I never didn't know Jesus as the Messiah. I might not have known him as a savior. I might not have been regenerated by him yet. But growing up in church, I, I encountered Jesus as, as Messiah, right? All, all my life. I encountered the stories of what Jesus has done, right? We, um, we do a very interesting thing in our culture, and I'm not making a comment, but we take Bible stories and we put them into children's books, and, and then we read them to children. What's interesting is a lot of times we take Bible stories which are radical and crazy and, and just like mind-blowing, and we reduce them down and put them into, into children's books. And I'm, I'm a product of that. I, I have had the children's book of Christianity, and I think what happens in, in, in our in our culture sometimes is that we hear the words of Jesus and we hear them as normal. And one of the things I think the, the biggest danger 
there is is to hear the things that Jesus says is just normal. Right? Just, oh, yeah, he said that. No big deal. Clearly he did. We have them in the Bible. We know that. We know what he did. And because we're so familiar with the end and the sweep of the story, we forgot to encounter the radicalness of the story in the midst of it, of it happening. Which is really problematic because that's kind of who, who, who the Jewish people who are about to reject Jesus were too. Right? They've heard the stories. They they know the stories. What they're not fully prepared for is for somebody to stand up in their midst and go, hey, all those stories, those are about me. I'm the fulfillment of them. It's radical what, what has just happened. It's crazy. And what I, I worry for us is that we start to hear what Jesus has done as normal, as normative, as no big deal, right? So we, uh, we and, and not we, I shouldn't say we, but... Some Christians are always throwing fits about things that happen in media where they feel like we as Christians have been slighted, right? And so the latest one is this argument over uh, over Starbucks red cup, which I think is red and green, but it's definitely red, which to me is a Christmas color, right? But whatever, we're all up in arms. I don't drink coffee, so I'm completely unemotional about this, right? But people are like, Starbucks is, they hate Christmas, or they don't like Christians. Look at them. They took, they took the snowflakes and the reindeer off their cups. Right? How dare they? Ah, right? And we're throwing this giant fit. How dare Starbucks take the secular representation of the pimping of our religion off their cups? Right? Cause, cause, and I like a, a reindeer and a snowflake as much as the next guy. I'm kind of pro Christmas celebration, pro all that, as long as it's after Thanksgiving. I'm very, very, very regimented. I'm, I'm very opposed to, to, to pre Thanksgiving, Christmasing, let it, let each holiday boot. But I kind of, you know, I get the American thing, but it's very interesting to me that there are actual Christians out there, or at least they tell us there were. I've never really encountered these people, except for the one crazy dude in the YouTube, right? Uh, uh going, How dare Starbucks? They don't like Christians. And I'm like, wait a minute, guys. If you think a snowflake and a reindeer is the center of Christianity, you're confused, right? But what I think has happened is that we have this expectation because we've grown up in sort of a, a, a national, what's called Christendom, right? Christendom is not, doesn't mean where Christianity is. Christendom is Christianity plus political power ruling in, in a place so that you grow up in kind of a cultural Christianity. Because we've grown up in America, because we came through that, we grew up in a, in a, a Christendom. We are very used to the society loving us, speaking for us, or speaking the things that we say. We are used to having great influence in the society. So now, that when that, when, when we don't have that influence in, in society, we, we have a heart attack, right? And then we get upset about really strange stuff. Cause, here, here's the thing. I'm not sure that Starbucks putting snowflakes or reindeer on their cups makes our nation any more Christian than them just having red cups, right? Can we all agree that that's just kind of a logical statement, right? Like, oh, great, Starbucks is celebrating the commercialized, de-Christized version of Christmas. So everything's okay in our country. What I'm saying is that we have gotten so used to to a basic, bland version of Christianity that we so accepted into our hearts 
if you would, right? We've so accepted this bland version of Christianity that when other people don't respond to its bland cultural pervasiveness, we think that somehow we're being persecuted, which, by the way, is completely offensive because there's actual Christians being persecuted, right? And it's not over a cup in Starbucks, right? It's not over something silly. But but we have so accepted bland Christianity that when bland Christianity is not spread all around, right? That's how we get into fights. One of the, the sillier fights that Americans regularly have is about whether the Ten Commandments should be on the wall behind judges, right? And we're like, we need the Ten Commandments because that shows that we're under God's law. And I always want to say, listen, for a person who does not know Jesus... The Ten Commandments on the wall behind them are not a help. They are rather just a declaration of their own destruction. Right? Because what are the Ten Commandments but laws given by God that they cannot possibly follow, that they cannot possibly live up to? And so all of this to say, I think we live in kind of a cultural time where we have so gotten used to the idea of Christianity that that we've lost all sort of radical understanding. Right? Like, Like the Messiah in our midst has been reduced to arguments about cups or about civil religion or about statues or about about the fact that they won't say Merry Christmas, right? As if that is, they wouldn't even say Merry Christmas. What's the world? We, we were involved in all of these sorts of, sorts of things. And I think what's happened is, is that we have gotten so used to the Christian story, that we've forgotten how radical it is, right? So stepping back into the historical moment with Jesus, right? He shows up in the synagogue, and they're kind of used to their their story. They're kind of in the same place, too, and they have expectations. And Jesus just stood up and said, by the way, everything in this book is about me, right? And when he says that, he doesn't say that in American sort of way or a church sort of way where we would say everything in this book you know god loves you and he wrote it for you right it's not like that romanticizing no he's like no this is about me he stood up read scripture and then declared himself to be the fulfillment of that scripture while he was standing there in their midst go back to everything that the implication then is that everything said in isaiah chapter 61 applies to jesus and he's the fulfillment of it think about the things that it said was going to happen it it says not only is he going to bring good news to the poor Not only is he going to set captives free, not only is he going to give liberty, not only is he going to turn mourning into into gladness, not only is he going to take their ashes and make them beautiful, but he's also going to bring recompense, which is reward, and he's also going to bring judgment, which is destruction for those who oppose his way. The claims that he is making are radical, radical, radical claims. They are completely, totally, and fully insane claims, unless... They're true, right? But we kind of miss that because we're used to Jesus doing things that we've read about him doing. We got the end of the story, so so we don't kind of encounter or experience that as we should. One of the one of the cool things that happens in world missions, I think, is um, organizations. Uh, certain organizations have a way of sharing. Christ with people who have never heard his name spoke, wherein they tell the story from, from the beginning. And I've watched this happen in, in, a, in a different way, ways. And so one of my favorite videos is a video called Etow, which is an old, old video from New Tribes 
But it's the story of what happened when they were amongst the tribal people. Here's what New Tribes does. New Tribes, because they've seen uh, what happens when you go in and just talk about Jesus into a culture where they can't understand it. They just adopt Jesus into their culture, not real Jesus. And so, so New Tribes goes in, and they will spend like 10 years making sure that they understand the fullness of the language, the fullness of the culture. And so they're just learning for 10 years, and they don't, they don't launch into, on the first day on their mission job, like declaration or proclamation of, of Jesus. Because what they've discovered is when that happens amongst the tribal people, especially if those tribal people happen to be, um, happen to be polytheistic, is that Jesus just gets accepted as another one of the neat gods. They're like, that God's neato. And so they accept him. So what they do is they go and learn culture and they go and learn language and they can do it for 10 years. I was reading this biography called Your Witch Doctors Are Too Weak. And it's the story of a missionary who's like 10 years and they're, they're anxious and they really want to share Christ with, with the tribal people, but they can't because other people have come and they haven't learned the language, they haven't learned the culture, they haven't learned the right way to say it, and they said things about Jesus that have actually communicated a false gospel. So they spend 10 years often learning uh, the culture and learning the language to make sure that they can clearly communicate. And then they translate, and what they do is they translate the scriptural uh, story starting in Genesis and they share it over time. They teach it over time in a narrative way starting at, at Genesis. Right? And so a super interesting thing happens amongst these people who have never heard the name of Jesus spoken is that they start to track with it and follow with it so that they get to the point uh, when they're uh, when, when they're reading uh, uh, the story of, of the sacrificing of lambs, they start to, start to get it. And then as they tell the story, they start to realize, well, we need a sacrificial lamb, right? And so, But they start from Genesis and they realize, oh, we're sinners, which they've never encountered. But they're encountering it for the first time, not as like a cultural thing, right? They're encountering Scripture almost as if they were in real-time history, as if the revelation were just happening. So they, they get Genesis, they get, they get all of this, and it builds and builds and builds, and they tell the sacrificial lamb, they're like, we need a sacrificial lamb. And then at one point they said the people started to weep over, they're saying, they're like, we're sinful and we need, we need, uh, we need the Savior. And so if you're, if you're me and you're missionary, you're like, right, you're like, okay, tell the story quick, tell them about Jesus, sign them all up, so to speak. But these, these missionaries had like great patience. They knew, no, they need the fullness of the story. So they said, just wait, and they continue to tell the story. And Jesus comes on the scene, right? When Jesus comes on the scene, they, because they have been encountered it, Step by step, they realize that Jesus is a fulfillment of the prophecy. And they're all excited. They're like, Jesus is the one. He's the one that's going to be the Savior. And they're all excited about Jesus and they're pumped up. And then they tell them the story of Jesus' crucifixion. And it destroys them. Because they've never heard it. They don't get it. They, they've never heard this, this story. And, they, and they, they, what happens is the whole tribe begins to weep and wail and, and cry out because they, they, they've been convicted and convinced of the truth of Scripture. And now they've encountered this idea that this Jesus was the Messiah and they just killed Him. It wrecks them. It completely destroys them. And the missionaries continue with, with the story. And then they introduce them to the idea of the resurrection. You've got to, if you, if you have YouTube, go find Etow and watch this. It is the most insane thing I've ever seen. I believe that they say this in the, in, in the thing. When they tell the story of the resurrection, the people realize that Jesus is the savior of their sins. They automatically associate it with, with, with the, the sacrifices of, um, 
of, of Isaac and Abraham. Like, they understand theology because it's been given to them narratively. They understand how it happened. Like, they associate. But the people are so excited when Jesus is resurrected, instantly everyone realizes that there is a Savior for their sins. And it's the conversion of the whole tribe. What happens then is a three-day celebration where they dance and act absolutely like they did not grow up Baptist, right? I mean, they just, they dance and they're going crazy because this is the, their, their savior, right? It's absolutely amazing to them, right? Because they encountered it in real time in, in actual revelation. Um, I think there's a certain sense in which, though we in America are so blessed, those people have an amazing blessing because they encountered Jesus in a way that does not, um, That, that that's not just cultural for them. That's not just expected. That's not just, right? So I think one of the things that happens in our culture is that we have kind of a de-radicalized Messiah. And we don't hear the radicalness of what just happened, right? So what I want to catch for you and I want you to encounter is, is that when Jesus says this in their presence, a radical thing just happens. Of course, they're staring at him. Did you hear that message he just preached? <laughs> he goes... Today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I would say, what would happen like if someone came in here, you know, read the book and said, by the way, that's me. Well, because we know Jesus, obviously, we go, no, that's not, you can't say that. But see, they thought they had established religion too, and they were waiting for a Messiah, but Jesus was not the Messiah they were expecting. And here he is, it's like, no, I'm that guy. I want you to get how radical that is. A couple of reasons. One, you need to re-encounter a historically real, a historically accurate, and actually lived radical Messiah. He's real. He came. He did these things. We, we make him into a, a story. Uh, we make him into a celebration. We make him into a ritual. We make him talk. But he's real. He actually came. He actually said that he stood in their presence. And declared himself to be the fulfillment of scripture. It's a radical claim. I also want you to understand that it's a radical claim even in its own time. So that, so that when you encounter people go, yeah, Jesus was a good person. But he wasn't, he wasn't God. He wasn't all that. He was just a good teacher. Man, I'm not sure that you can read what Jesus just said in Luke chapter 4 and go, as He's a good teacher. No. He's either telling the truth or he's insane. Or worse. Right? He just claimed to be the fulfillment of Scripture. Let me give you a little, even everything we said, let me give you a little tip. If you're ever in a service, right, be it here or any place else, and the pastor claims that he's a direct fulfillment of Scripture, you should leave. You should go. That dude's crazy. And he's evil. Because he, he, he's not. Right? And the only way Jesus is not both crazy and evil is if he's telling the truth. So why do we keep saying that Jesus is the Messiah? Well, he's the prophesied Messiah. And we keep saying, well, this was written 700 years before Jesus. Why is that a big deal? Because 700 years later, Jesus is going to show up. Luke's going to record his first sermon. The first sermon that Luke's going to record from him is Isaiah chapter 61. And it's a messianic claim. I am him. 
I'm him. I'm that one. And so I want you to get that, that two, two things. One, my hope is that you realize that the, the Savior and the Messiah that, that we have, and the Messiah that we've encountered, I hope what will happen is that the, that the years of cultural Christianity and junk that most of us are, are exposed to can be peeled back enough so that you can understand the depth of what it means that Jesus has come and He is the Messiah. That you will understand the depth of what it meant that when He walked the earth to do the Messiah things, when He came to be good news to the poor, when He came to declare liberty, it took a lot more than just a story like we read in. This was a real, actual thing that happens in history. Jesus really died. And He really rose again. And He's really the Savior. So I want you to encounter that disconnected from some of our cultural baggage. I want you to encounter Jesus. But then the other thing is, I want you to understand, contra any cultural argument, that if Jesus is not God, and if Jesus is not the Messiah, if He's not this anointed one, then Jesus is not a good man. I'm sure many of you are familiar with um, uh, with C.S. Lewis in his quote on the subject, in which he said something like, we need to get past any sort of um, any sort of hogwash or, or rubbish idea about Jesus being a, being a good teacher. He's either insane on the level of someone who says he's a poached egg, or worse, he's evil up there with all the madmen of society. But let's not have any rubbish about him being a good good man because he does not allow us that choice. He's either a lunatic, he's a liar, or he's who he said he was, the Son of God, the Anointed One. And I want you to see that in the passage, that that is the reality, and that is the, that is the choice that Scripture sets up for you. Right? Here he is. Here's this Messiah. And so, here's, here's where I, uh, I hope we go with this. Honestly, I was going to focus in <laughs> As I was praying, I was going to focus in on uh, on this idea that he preaches good news to the poor in both places, and talk about this reality that that's a, both a, a physical reality and a spiritual reality. And sometimes we spiritualize that, but the churches. But then we kind of did that last week. And then as I'm saying, I'm like, no, what we really need to catch here is this: is that he's a real Messiah, and you've got to decide what you're going to do with a real Messiah, right? They were expecting a Messiah who was coming, going to come. And he was going to lead them to, to a triumphant military victory. But Jesus doesn't seem to have any interest in being that sort of Messiah for them. I'm always interested, sometimes when I hear people's um, eschatological visions, their visions of the end time, and the kingdom that they view Jesus giving uh, people in the end time seems to be identical to the kingdom that they crucified him for not giving them the first time. I'm like, why would Jesus come to give give that that kingdom to them? But Jesus doesn't seem to be interested in giving them their geopolitical kingdom where they could be the one in the center. That he he doesn't seem interested in it. And so he he says to them today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they speak well of him and marvel at the words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? Right. So at first they're amazed, and they're like, wait a minute, isn't that Joe's kid? What's he talking about? Then Jesus says to them, he says, Doubtless you will quote me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What have you heard, what you have heard, 
We, what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up in three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah, who was sent to none of them, but only um, to that woman. Uh, you don't have it. It's like Zephathriah, right? Uh, only Zephathriah. And Elijah, who was sent to none of them, only Zarephath. That's all I'm going to say. Uh, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard him heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose out and drove him out of town and brought him to the, to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Right? Here, here's what just happened. Jesus shows up and he gives this prophecy and they're marveling at him. They're even letting him get away with claiming he's the fulfillment of Isaiah 61 until he tells them that he's not going to fulfill it immediately in their midst and in the way that they like it. Right? It's like, yeah, you've heard that, but you don't give me any respect. So I'm not going to heal anyone in, in your town like the ones before me. And then they're really ticked off and they try and kill him. And so here's here's where I think that leads us. We've kind of got to decide what to do with Jesus, right? Like, when Jesus says he's the fulfillment of Isaiah 61, I believe that to be true, right? And when I read Isaiah 61, I think that tells us about who God is as revealed in Jesus. And then I think Jesus is the fullness of who God is. And when he claims to be that fulfillment in Isaiah 61, but then the question becomes this. I believe lots of things, um, and, and they come from the Bible, but what happens when my cultural expectation or my expectation of him runs up against his sovereign will or his teaching in Scripture, and I have to be convicted by it and confronted by it? What I've got to decide is what in the world will I do with Jesus, right? Because he's real, and he's radical, and he lived, and he was, and he is bringing a kingdom, and he is preaching good news to the poor, and he is setting uh, captives free, and he's doing all of those things. But if you're going to be a Christian, that's an acceptance of the idea that Jesus, when he said that he was fulfillment of things, that that's true. That he's neither a lunatic nor a liar. He truly is Lord, the Son of God, right? We're going to spend Christmas time talking more about what, what that means, but, but Jesus is God in the flesh, right? That's what it says elsewhere. He is those, those things. And so I assent to all of those theological ideas, but what happens when those theological ideas work out in my life and the implications are not the ones that I want? Or when, when Jesus says, <clears throat> here, you know, when I encounter him, and uh, we encounter God in Jesus and through reading in scripture and I, I come to that moment where my expectation of what I thought when those things are wiped away in the spirit of the living God says, no, this is what I expect. What do I do with Jesus? And so that, that becomes the grand question for you. What, um, what are you going to do with this Jesus? Are you going to be like the, are you going to be like the people in the passage in Luke who at first marvel at him, but the minute they realize he's not going to give them what they expect? They try and run him off a cliff. What will you do with Jesus? And so, I guess I could go on. I have nothing any deeper than that this morning, right? The passage is there. The passage is here. What in the world are we going to do with Jesus? What's he going to be to you? How are you going to understand? How are you going to know him as he is? Or as you want him to be, right?
And when he reveals himself as he is, is that going to result in, in, in your worship? Is that going to result in conviction? Is that going to result until you're turning towards him? Is that going to result in that moment where justice and robbery in your own life are wiped out because his righteousness comes into you? Or are you going to try and run Jesus off a cliff? Which you might not do throughout right rejection. You'll just try and write a new Jesus. You try and convince yourself. What will you do with Jesus? And so that's what we have this morning. Pray with me.